It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The polar regions of our planet may seem beyond the reach of most of us. In the Arctic, melting ice is raising geopolitical tensions, kick-starting a race for potentially priceless minerals, oil deposits, and shipping routes. Now a new Arctic is a modern flashpoint for the world's biggest struggles over resources and the future of the Earth itself. China is geographically uh, near Arctic state. The United States is an Arctic nation. These uh, restrictions cannot stop us from this process, from exploring the Arctic. The Kremlin has stepped up its military presence there, using the region as a test bed for advanced weapons. On a frozen, windswept expanse in the Arctic, Vladimir Putin's military ambition is on grand display. A Britain's most senior military officer has warned of a new threat posed by Russia to communications cables that run under the sea. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTay. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week we have a really special episode for you that Helen and I are really excited about, the geopolitics of the Arctic. Now I hadn't even really thought about this until Helen brought it up and mentioned a really great writer and thinker on this subject called Dr. Pippa Malgram, who writes these fantastic Substacks posts all about it. And I'm delighted to say that she's here with us today. I'm so happy to be here. Um, so Pippa is a technology entrepreneur, economist, and a former special assistant to George Bush. Among those in the know, she's seen by she's seen as one of the great geopolitical thinkers, and I'd encourage everyone to read her Substack, Dr. Pippa's Pen and Podcast. That's is that right? right. <laughs> so Pippa, thanks so much for coming in today. We'll start with the most basic question, I think. What is going on in the Arctic now and why should we care? Okay, so to begin with, the media of the world has told us that the only really serious geopolitical event on the planet is what's happening in Ukraine, with Taiwan being a close second. And I think that is not a clear representation of reality. I think the superpowers are at odds and have been for a while. And I've described it as we're in a hot war in cold places that includes space, that includes the Arctic and the high north. 
And we're in a Cold War in hot places, meaning Africa and particularly the Pacific. And so why doesn't the media write about the events that are occurring in these places? It's partly because it doesn't fit into some overarching narrative, right? Ukraine is easy. It's good guys, bad guys, our side, their side. What is happening in the Arctic is so far out of mind as well. You know, people are like, there's no human interest story because hardly anybody lives there. But the reality is it's of crucial importance. And to my mind, things really started heating up there before the war in Ukraine, roughly 50 days before the tanks, Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine. We had an event in the Arctic that I think is the anchor point for why the Arctic is in play from a geopolitical point of view. And that was when it appears the Russians cut what is the fastest internet cable in the world. Virtually every high altitude satellite, whether commercial or military, connects to Earth at this point. It's called Svalbard. It's part of Norway and it's inside the Arctic Circle. And so the intention was clear. If they hadn't had a redundant cable, that literally would have been, first of all, first of all no more missile guidance. So from a defense perspective, that's a very big deal. But the public doesn't really care about that. But when I say no more Uber Eats, <laughs> then everybody goes, what? Because this is GPS, right? Where does our GPS come from? It comes from satellites. So if you cut the link to the satellites, boom. And so to me, when I saw that event happen and the chief of the British Defense Forces, Sir Tony Radican, came out the next day and said, this should be considered an act of war. And then he went silent, and it all went silent because everybody suddenly realized, oh my God, we're going to be in a direct confrontation between the superpowers if we take this approach. And because all of the scenarios in dealing with Russia where there's a direct superpower to superpower confrontation, it immediately goes nuclear. Mm -hmm. So no one wanted it to go there. So then it all just went quiet. But the reality is that the Russians and the Chinese see huge resources and value in the Arctic. And so there's a fight over who is going to have access. We like long history on this uh, podcast. And so I want to ask you to put what was happening now in context of, let's say, about a century. Yeah. So what's really interesting, I think, or one of, there's many, many things interesting about Svalbard, but one of the interesting things is that it's governed by this treaty. Yeah. The Svalbard Treaty, that is the only remaining treaty left from Versailles. Exactly. So everything else obviously belongs to the history of the 20th century in some fairly disastrous ways, but this one survived. So could you explain to us why there was a Svalbard Treaty in the first place and when you think the geopolitics of the Arctic begins and what's going on? Sure. Now, we may all have to collaborate because I'm not an expert on this history, but it is clear that the settlement reached over this island, Svalbard, um, was a condominium, meaning many countries retained access to this physical space. If I recall, it's 43 countries or signatories to the Svalbard Treaty. That's amazing. And, and it's should, owned by... We should say, it gives the, the treaty gives Norway... Oh, so Norway... It gives it sovereignty. But in it has theory, yeah, but, but everyone's got mineral right exploration. Correct, and can send their people there. So I went up there last summer for a whole bunch of reasons, and also because I think this is a very critical geopolitical hotspot, so I wanted to get a grip on it. And, of course, you go there, and the harbor is full of NATO ships right now, right? So it's already 
clear that it's this point. But what's fascinating is you go into the town, and there's only really one town in Long Birian, um, it's full of Malaysians and Filipinos and, I mean, literally people from all over the world. And you're like, what the heck are these people all doing here? And the answer is their countries are signatories to this arrangement, which gives them the right to go there and to work without needing a work visa, right? So the Russians are included in this. And so they have mineral rights and the right to have their citizens working there. Now, why would they want to keep a foothold there? I think there are many reasons, but partly you've got to look at the geography. And what you'll see is that Russia's principal naval and submarine base is not very far from Svalbard. So this is the first point at which NATO would come in direct contact with Russian ships and submarines. And so, of course, the Russians feel that this is an imposition on them. But it's also true that NATO and a um, number of organizations keep quite a lot of strategic equipment in Svalbard. Um, one of, you know, and there are many valuable things there. So one of them is the seed bank. And most people don't know about the seed bank, but um, it's an extraordinary, very triangular building uh, that is where every nation in the world stores a blueprint, a genetic copy of all of the seeds in their country. In case there's ever an apocalypse, that's <laughs> where are literally all the blueprints, all of the seeds of the world are stored. Sounds like a James Bond it film. It really is. Yeah. When you go stand underneath it, it's, it's straight out of James Bond. It's a fascinating site. But also right next to that is um, this huge facility that's totally secret. Um, it is what they call um, an antenna array. Um, some people call it a harp. Um, I can't remember now, what is it? The high oral, it's basically the name for when you create these antennas that are capable of pumping huge amount of energy into the ionosphere. But one of the uses is that this is how one communicates with submarine fleets. And so, of course, from a Russian perspective, that's a military strategic location for NATO and the United States to com to connect with the submarine fleet globally. Obviously, putting that out of order would be in Russia's interest, right? Have they tried to put it out? Uh, we don't know. It's so highly classified. There's almost nothing about this facility, let alone you know, stories of it being needed to be reinforced or whatever. But again, the fact that all the satellites connect to Earth at this point is equally important. So I think for me, I look at it and I'm like, you know what? The same way Russia rolled into Ukraine, it's quite possible we could see the same thing happen in Svalbard. So they just take it over and then once they're there, there's nothing we can do about it. Well, now that we've got all this NATO presence there, it's a different story. But when this started back in, uh, you know, like I said, just before the Ukraine war began, Svalbard was considered a kind of sleepy little place, right? And but it wasn't a high priority. <laughs> it wasn't a high priority, but you could, you could say, I would say though, that actually the tensions beginning to become evident back like 2007, I mean, isn't it yes. 2007 that the Russians go and they put their flag about two miles south of the North yes. Pole, that China starts showing considerable interest 
in the Arctic through the 2010s, 2018, Chinese leadership describes China as a near-Arctic state. Yes. And the Norwegians say they're going to start exploring for oil and gas because the warmer it is in the Arctic, the more possible it is to extract oil and gas and the mineral resources on the waters. So you've got pretty much everything going. Totally agree. And in fact, that moment when President Putin planted a titanium Russian flag (laughs) into the Arctic ice underneath, I can't remember how far down it was, but it was remarkably far down, thus proving that their submarines are capable of handling extreme depths. Um, So it was a kind of demonstration of prowess as well. But that moment, which was a very, this is mine, mine, all mine, no one else's kind of a moment, um, was very important. And so let's understand what's in the Arctic and the alignment between Russia and China and their focus on the Arctic. What is this about? Well, partly the Chinese now have the fastest icebreakers in the world, and they're able to move them from roughly Dalian in eastern China across the Arctic and into Rotterdam, which is their principal port that they've put a lot of capital into under their famous Belt and Road Initiative, which is all about building ports and highways and railway links to bring valuable assets back to China. And now they can make that route in less than 28 days. So that saves them from having to go the other direction and have the vulnerabilities around things like the Malacca Straits in Malaysia. Now, what else is in the Arctic that's of great interest? I personally think probably the most valuable thing there, which hardly anyone ever mentions, is protein. And so we're living in a world where, you know, the war in Ukraine definitely pushed up food and energy prices. Um, I would argue that was a very deliberate strategy. Um, They were very aware the West was already experiencing some inflation, and so they effectively weaponized food and energy. Well, in that world where you're anticipating that these prices are going to go up, you still have to feed China. And if you have access to that that resource of protein, that's incredibly valuable. So you may say, well, but there are all these rules and you're not supposed to be trolling the Arctic for the fish. Yeah, but who's up there to to guard any of this or to, to monitor any of this? I think I'm right in saying the United States has one single icebreaker up there and that's it because nobody's invested, right? And so suddenly there was a realization that there was we're just literally outnumbered. There's a total shift in the balance of power. And that is partly, in my opinion, what started to bring Norway into the fight, as it were. And they are the front line. And notice that Norwegian, the Norwegian military and Norwegian intelligence are normally literally almost invisible. Like you Google and there's just nothing there. And then all of a sudden, last February, I believe it was, there was a joint statement from both the Norwegian intelligence service, head of the Norwegian intelligence service and the head of the military saying, we are concerned that Russia is beginning to place nuclear weapons on ships and submarines, and they would come right past us. And of course, this coincides with um, all of the discussion of various Nordic countries joining NATO. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of bigger picture again to be understood, but most people talk about the oil and gas and the mineral resources that are in the Arctic, all of which are definitely more accessible as the thing melts. 
What about let's go to the Arctic Council because obviously this is something that the war changed in that was it the day after or a couple of days after anyway the invasion Russia's invasion of Ukraine the other members of the Arctic Council suspended Russia yes. from the council but literally in the last week or so I mean, the working groups of the Arctic Council have started working again yes so with Russia yeah Russia's back in that sense at the, at the, at the working group level anyway so. W- why was it such a big deal, the Arctic Council being suspended, particularly in a context in which actually then we're getting Arctic new members of NATO? And yeah. what's going on if actually the thing is getting working again? And there's also one other piece, which is the Foreign Minister Lavrov just two days ago announced that Russia would not be working, would be withdrawing from the Barents Euro Forum. Euro Forum. Exactly, which is in reference to the Barents Sea, which is, again, where Svalbard is located. Um, So I think, honestly, the issue for Russia is they want to have a greater physical presence. They don't want to be constrained by Western rules. And so the being pushed out of the Arctic Council was kind of the West way of saying, you're behaving badly, and so we're going to exclude you. It was one of many steps taken in that respect. But I don't think that's that's such the big deal for the Russians. The Russians is positioning to be able to say, you've done something, and I am justified in reacting. And again, in keeping with that, I noticed at the beginning of the war in Ukraine, at one point, the Russians dropped the price of flights from Ukraine to Svalbard. And so you're like, why would a bunch of people in Ukraine be wanting to fly to Svalbard? And the answer is, well, you might want to place a lot of Russians from the Russian part of Ukraine and move them to where your next target is. And so, again, this was also what was happening in other locations Um Russians moving into exclaves, as they call them, um, these, again, kind of left over from the Second World War locations that are aligned with Russia. So Moldova, Transnistria, they sound Kaliningrad. like- Kaliningrad is not an exclave. Kaliningrad is Russia, which is partly why it's such a huge issue for Western Europe. Um, I think you could maybe, though, I just wanted to throw in this as an idea. I think if you, if you look at what went on between- or in the immediate aftermath of the invasion, Russia looks like it moves closer to China on various Arctic questions. And obviously, China is only observer member at the Arctic Council. I presume it would like to yeah, be. It given would very it, much like to given be. Given that it thinks it. it's near Arctic yeah. um, state. And obviously, there's quite a lot of, been a lot, a lot of cooperation about the Great Northern Sea Route that yes. you've already mentioned, which is a great advantage for China in terms of reducing, or at least seeming at least, to reduce the possibility of a maritime blockade from the U.S. Navy uh, against it. Could you perhaps read it as that there's some incentive to try to pull Russia back into the Arctic Council to try to reduce the incentives for really having a China-centric Arctic approach? Well, I think we have to step back a bit. Now, I have a theory about what's going on. Um, It's a challenging theory. But I think that this alliance between Russia and China – 
initially, President Putin thought, great, I have this big brother who's on my team, and that really empowers me. And that worked up until President Putin started to threaten nuclear weapons. And then literally within an hour of the first threat to use nuclear weapons, President Xi came out and said, truce, constructive negotiations. And so suddenly there was a split. I wonder, because the Chinese are very good, they play a long game, and they could see that Putin's throwing a punch at the West via Ukraine might weaken him over time. And I would argue that within Russia, everything east of the Urals, the Ural Mountains, has traditionally been very difficult for Moscow to govern, because it's just so darn far away. And traditionally, that part of the world, one might even say, a lot of it's been really run by organized crime. But it used to be Russian organized crime. And today it's all Chinese organized crime. So is China effectively taking over the east of Russia? This is the kind of Eurasian idea that they, you, you buy it. I think that's what China is very quietly doing. And when you understand that's their game plan, then their interest in the Arctic becomes obvious, totally obvious, because it's going to be all theirs. Because then they say we will not just be a near-Arctic state. We will be an Arctic Arctic state. state. Exactly. And I think in the negotiations over Taiwan, let's back up on that one. Once, Once Xi came in and said, you know, truce, constructive talks, no nuclear, the U.S. said to China, great, we'd love to work with you on this because none of us want to face a nuclear problem. And Xi says, well, great, but I've got some things on a list that I want addressed. Obviously, one of them is Taiwan. But another one is, at the end of all this, when the borders of the map will have maybe not actually moved, but effectively moved, and we control most of eastern Russia, we don't want any pushback. I think that's part of the negotiation strategy that China is pursuing right now. And frankly, from a Western NATO and US perspective, that might not be such a bad outcome because Russia then is effectively a much smaller state than it was before, easier to manage in some respects. Um, And you may say, yeah, but we don't want to deal with a much larger China. But the question is, what other options might we have? And China, in the end, does need to grow, right? Its fundamental problem is that it cannot feed its own population. It does not have enough arable land. It does not have enough water. It does not have enough food-producing capabilities. So if China is to get greater control of the cash flows associated with the east of Russia, which means forestry and food and oil and gas and raw materials, could that be enough to lift the Chinese economy back into a state of reasonable health again? Yes. And would that be a better way to then be able to deal with China in a less confrontational way. So I, I was going to say, isn't the alternative strategy from a, from an American perspective a kind of reverse Kissinger Nixon? And it's if you could deal with this Ukraine issue, I know that's a big caveat, but if you mm. could deal with that, wouldn't the logical thing to do is to try and partner up with Russia uh, in the way that you partnered up with China in the 70s to try and manage the greater superpower? Ah, okay. So this is interesting. So it happens that 
My father was deeply involved in all this when he worked for Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford. And when Nixon came into office and he wanted to open the dialogue with the communist world, he sent Kissinger to Beijing and he sent my dad to Moscow. So um, I, that's given me a little bit of an inside understanding about you know how we interface with the Soviet Union and then Russia. I think the reality is today, American political leadership tend to take the view, we won the Cold War, you guys lost, end of story. This is this just is maddening to the Russians um, who don't think that they lost the Cold War and see this as a temporary setback, but they are a superpower and they don't like being treated as if they're a third-rate small economy, which is typically how the U.S. has treated them since that you know, moment when the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union ceased to exist. So, and it's arguable that President Putin did reach out to the West and said, please let me work with you and and work with NATO. And we just literally rebuffed that. We were like, don't be ridiculous, you lost. And that's when, now I'm not saying that caused him to be enraged, but I think it added to his rage and partly is how we end up in the position we're in with Ukraine. So it's not easy now for the West to find a friendly way to work with Russia. There just really isn't an easy way to do that. I personally have argued, though, that we need to think very carefully about what the future should look like, right? Because everybody's quick to talk about strategy and tactics and the approach to militarily managing Ukraine. But I'm like, yeah, but what's the what's the actual end game? What's the geopolitical outcome that we want? Because we know from history that if Russia, quote, loses, right, then we all lose because whenever there's a major loser, a superpower loser, you will end up in that fight again at some later date. And that was the whole point of the Marshall Plan, right? It was the understanding that, yes, the West won, Germany was defeated, but if we treat them as a defeated power, it, you're just festering a problem that's going to come back later. So let's reverse what we've done for centuries, which is to vanquish the defeated, and instead reach out and make them partners. And so I think we're going to need a new Marshall Plan, not just to rebuild Ukraine, but to rebuild Russia. Because if we don't rebuild Russia, we're going to face another similar situation again at a later date. And frankly, the U.S. approach to China, which has basically been, let's apply cancel culture. Let's just cancel the country, right? I mean, that's really been what we've been doing. I'm like, you can't cancel 1.4 billion people, right? These people need to live in a world, and all the Russians too, where they can actually believe they're going to have a better future. And if they don't believe they're going to have a better future then it's easy for them to follow someone, a demagogue, who says, let's fight. And I think that's the particular problem that we have right now, because it's so politically unpalatable to say, we need to find a way to work with both Russia and China in the aftermath of whatever is going to happen, because otherwise we're still going to have a problem. But this is not a popular view. Where does that leave us then with, if that Eastern Russia becomes a sort of Chinese sphere of influence and China becomes a more than a near Arctic power? Where does that then leave the geopolitics of the, of the Arctic? Because then it, that kind of creates NATO against China yes, in the Arctic. Correct. And 
And that is, I think, what what will ultimately happen is, look, Turkey is an Arctic power at this point. I found that back. Well, it signed the Svalbard Treaty in 2022. Back to the early 20s. Yeah, I'm oh, sorry. That's right. So once you're a signatory, you're in. Again, part of that, that Versailles Treaty deal is if you become a signatory, then yeah. you can be there. And the Turks are clever. They realized that this is a this is a valuable space and a strategically valuable space. And they said, we want to be in Particularly this Particularly given their difficulties in the East Mediterranean where gas is concerned. But what do you really get from that by like having a little presence in Svalbard? Like you're still not going to actually be a power in the Arctic itself, are you? Well, it opens lots of possibilities. Um, it gives you a seat at that table. Mm-hmm. It does mean you can have Turks physically present in nor you know in Svalbard. Um, if I have to say, I wish I wish John Le Carre were still around because <laughs> somebody needs to be writing the novels about this new confrontation. And I imagine that Svalbard is full of spies and full of special ops people and full of preparations on all sides. And so does Turkey want to be involved in that? Definitely. This is where the action is in our our equivalent of this Cold War. So it's like Svalbard is the new Berlin. It is. I would say that is a very good analogy. But there's another place we need to turn to after the break, and that's Greenland. Yes. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Denmark essentially owns it. We're very good allies with Denmark. We protect Denmark like we protect large portions of the world. So the concept came up and I said certainly I'd be strategically it's interesting and we'd be interested but we'll talk to them a little bit. It's not number one on the burner I can tell you that. Essentially it's a large real estate deal. Pippa, let's go back to 2019, I think it was, and Donald Trump let it be known that he wanted to buy Greenland for the United States. Tell us what was going on there. Well, this is so fascinating. And the American public were like, what and where? Um, I could say this as an American. When, you know, we were at war, when the war in Afghanistan, there was some survey done that asked Americans to put a pin on a map where Afghanistan was. And they started putting it in at Denmark and the Netherlands, right? Americans are notorious for not being very international. And so this idea of Greenland, where the heck is that? Like nobody even knows where it is. Very few people have a grip on how large this is. 
And there had been a history there, too, where normally it's part of Denmark, but the Greenlanders had pushed for independence from the parliament in Denmark. And so suddenly you could negotiate with the Greenlanders. And I think that Trump could see that the Arctic was definitely in play, that there were going to be not just commercially valuable stakes, but military stakes as well. And so one specific piece of that was the Chinese had been trying to buy up Greenland. And you're like, what are the Chinese doing there? Well, it turns out Greenland is full of what they call rare earth minerals. And it took the United States a while to register that, see, the thing with rare earth minerals is that they're not actually so rare, but there's a high concentration of them in Greenland. But what is tricky is refining them. That is a very toxic process. So over the course of the last 20 years, all of the refining capability moved to China because nobody wanted it in the U.S. or in their backyard in the West. Well, once China had all of it, that means you can't refine any of these rare earths. That means you're 100% dependent on China. Now, what do you need rare earth metals for? You cannot make a fighter jet without them. You cannot make an iPhone. You cannot make an MRI scanner. Like they are so central to modern technology that suddenly everybody realized, oh my gosh, we're 100% dependent on China for access to these critical inputs. So suddenly everybody looks at Greenland. Can we get access to these rare earths and rebuild the refining capability somewhere in the West? In Australia, maybe there's one company that was in California, like can permissions be given so that we don't have this chokehold problem? And so that is why Greenland started to be in play. It's, a, it's amazing. It actually reminds me of an episode we did on Africa where the Chinese were willing to do the kind of dirty work that the West was no longer willing to do. And we had kind of forgotten that the doing the dirty work still mattered Ooh. in geopolitics and it and it came with some real benefit. It should say as well as well and there is a comparison with Niger because there is also uranium yes. in in Greenland. Hundred percent as well. That's right. Wow. Yeah. So is it again that we're the West is being kind of slapped around the face, the geopolitics is back and it matters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so I wrote a book in roughly twenty sixteen. The initial title was Signals, the breakdown of the social contract and the rise of geopolitics, um, which was considered too heavy by the publisher. <laughs> so it, it was changed to something like signals how everyday signs help us navigate the world's economy, right? <laughs> <laughs> but the concept that I put forward then was super controversial. I basically said, look, because of the bailout of the financial institutions from the financial crisis of 2008, we have already built in that inflation is coming back. Mm -hmm. Now, this was at a time when everyone said inflation is dead. It will never come back. And I said, if inflation comes back, geopolitics is definitely going to come back. And everyone said, well, that's ridiculous as well, because, again, the Cold War is over. We won. Geopolitics is done. We're in a peace dividend. And I was like, hmm, I think these two go hand in hand, and it's built in now. And then what started to happen is inflation began to pick up because when you take interest rates to practically zero and you 
basically print money. That's not technically what happened, but let's just for the sake of hmm. argument, we'll call it we printed a ton of money, a record a sum of money, bigger than a wartime budget. And every nation did the same. So suddenly the markets are flooded. The natural outcome is that prices start to rise, right? Because there's more money chasing the same or fewer goods. Well, we went from 0% inflation to 3% inflation. The Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, they all said, don't worry, but this isn't really inflation. This is well within our boundary, right? They have a set of parameters, and it was within their target. But the key point is that for a poor family, when inflation goes from zero to three, that's enough to push you into the poverty space, right? Because when you look at food, only the only calories that are cheap enough to buy are the emptier ones. Now, if you're an emerging market, if you're China, your entire history tells you that political upheavals, if not overthrow of the government, exclusively happens when inflation picks up, right? Tiananmen Square happened with inflation rising to 14%. And so the Chinese immediately saw this as almost an attack on their stability. And particularly because they owned the bulk of the treasuries that were funding American living standards. And to say we're going to inflate, even though we deny that we're doing it, but effectively we are, this is also to say the Chinese, you're never going to get your money back either. So this alone created a very bad taste for the Chinese and a beginning of a sense of, wait, why do we take all our savings and put them back into the U.S. when they treat us like this? Let's take our savings and put it into physical infrastructure, what they called the Belt and Road Initiative. Let's build our own railway links, our own highways, our own global digital communications network, and let's reach into the parts of the world that have what we need, the food, the energy, the raw materials. And this is how the decision to bail out the banks translates into now a geopolitical raised contest for access to assets. So I know that seems, you know, again, why doesn't the media write about this? Because what I just described is too complex, apparently. I think actually most people could understand this. But but I, I made this case. Then, of course, once Ukraine happened, then we saw the weaponization of sudden increase of food and energy prices, which made inflation go up. And I have to say, you know, I'm in a privileged position. I get to brief a lot of the NATO generals. And when I sat with them and said, look, this is what's happening. It's a weaponization of food and energy. They kind of go, well, we don't deal with that. That's not our space. We, we deal with tanks. And I'm like, well, let's think about it this way. How much damage can Russia do with a tank? Very little. How much can they do with weaponizing food and energy prices? They get every citizen in the West. Every citizen. Oh, okay, this is a different way of thinking about strategic security. And of course, this is both China and Russia have this as military doctrine, which is in plain English, anything goes, right? Uh, they'll describe it as unrestricted warfare or unlimited warfare. But the West still is dealing almost in a kind of World War II you know, military doctrine where there's military stuff and then there's the economy, something over there. That's or or a post us. kind of 1990 worldview where the military yes. are there to go and intervene and make the world better, um, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas I, I actually think that people understand physical products, land, food, uh, that, that's how people think rather than find it easy to understand than quantitative easing or yes, something like that. Yeah. So when you have Trump 
saying, I want to buy Greenland. I think that cuts through in a way because people can understand it. You know, well, the, the American, the Americans do this with Alaska or didn't they do this with, you know, to, to, to create the United States? Isn't there a kind of logic? It's like, it's the classic Trump conundrum. You know, he kind of sees things in a way that people who have been brought up in politics don't. He sees it completely differently, but there's a, there's evidently a kind of, a kind of truth to what he sees. If why not buy Greenland? Well, that seems also incredibly a history, sensible. History to it. I think it was Truman who tried the last. Yes. Uh, there have been about three attempts before. Yes. Oh I yeah. Truman, it wasn't the first. The Truman was the last one. I think who tried to um, to buy it because Americans had occupied it during the that's right the, during the the Second World War, and the only way that really they accepted the Danish government saying they couldn't buy Greenland was to ha- for the Danish government to cede effectively sovereignty over the military parts. Military areas in yes in Greenland. So that's why, in a way, it's even the green one. The Greenland. I mean, I entirely agree with a lot of what you just said, Pippa. But the Greenland one's kind of weird in a way because, on the one hand, the, you, you've literally got military, the American military, and the resources, and the Chinese there. I mean, you don't need much imagination <laughs> to see think? how these things yeah. go together. <laughs> I think it's literally the modern parallel to what the British used to call the Great Game. Um, which was that period in the in the of empire when all the superpowers were trying to grab land in different parts of the world, and they were all spying on each other to understand who was going to go for which part of the world in Africa, in Asia, in you know Central Asia. You had the Rudyard Kipling Kim. Yes, but wasn't wasn't that given to U.S. Uh, secret services for a long time afterwards? As this is this is how to spy. That's yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. So I think that a lot of people have not understood that we're in a new great game, and that this movement amongst the superpowers to gain control, influence over second secondary and tertiary states, and to hold proxy events in these states, it's it kind of also like what happened in the '60s and '70s where the superpowers would pick a third-party location like a Vietnam, Cambodia, to have that confrontation because nobody wanted to have it directly. Um, the other thing, too, about Greenland, which is really important, is that historically, the technology the U.S. used to detect incoming nuclear missiles from Russia was a series of uh, radar arrays that went over Greenland. And so, you know, how would you know if there's an intercontinental ballistic missile headed your way? Well, in the old days, it's because you'd have listening stations that were on the ground. And so Greenland was essential for that. Today, that's all satellite-based, but the satellites depend on that point of contact with the Arctic, right? Like, really depend on that. And also... If you're talking about a world where Russia's genuinely threatening to use nuclear weapons and the Norwegians are saying, we genuinely think there's a risk they might be putting them on ships and submarines, now you need to monitor those waters. You're trying to see, are there actual nuclear submarines that are loaded coming our way? And this has led to a number of very interesting events that, again, got hardly described in the press. One of them wasn't very long ago, a couple of months ago. Uh, someone cut the internet cable between the Shetland Islands. I believe that's Scotland, right? <laughs> yes, yes, Scotland, <laughs> Shetland Islands. I don't want to offend anybody. Um, and the Danish Faroe Islands. 
And everybody's like, well, who cares? Like, it's a whole bunch of sheep. Like, so what? Yeah, but this is the exact point that NATO would need that internet capability to track Russian submarines that would be coming into the Atlantic. And similarly, Greenland is like this space that if you're trying to track where are the Russians, you have to track what's above and below Greenland. In fact, there's the old phrase for it is the GIUK gap, the G-I-U-K. It was the Greenland-Iceland-UK gap. And this was always considered a very important strategic location for monitoring what used to be the Soviet Union and now Russia. So is there a continuity from Trump to Biden in a concern about Greenland? Or, yeah. Or, I mean, where, where there obviously is in China, or is the Biden administration less interested in Greenland than Trump was? Well, what I think really fascinating is the Biden administration seems to have adopted many of Trump's foreign policies. Yep. And yeah. much to the surprise of Europeans and British who expected there to be a dramatic change. And some domestic policies on the Inflation Act. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also with China, right? Biden's position with China has been just as aggressive as Trump. Yeah. Um, if not more so. If not more so, yes, quite quite right. Um, and let's face it, this very populist approach to foreign policy is still very popular in the United States. Witness Donald Trump even after four sets of separate indictments that I believe hang over his head something like 561 years in prison as it stands – he still has an approval rating at 50%, which is just unheard of. And t- it was at 73 before the indictments. Okay. I wish he soon I could die for the one. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but anybody would die for these kinds of approval ratings, right? So look, it's not just about the man. It's about the country. Where is the sentiment within the country? And the answer is Americans are being very populist, um, I think, recognizing that there is a confrontation, and it's not only with Russia, it is also with China. And they understand there is a new great game, and their view is the U.S. should be playing well in that game. Why isn't there more of a kind of imperial um, policy towards Greenland, in a way? I mean, it is really in in your hemisphere. It's kind of this bit of Europe that's that's much closer to Canada and the, than the US. That was a justification for buying it, that we, because it was essentially it was an argument which was this is the Western Hemisphere, the Monroe Doctrine yes. applies, so Denmark is a colonial power with this country, and then that's not acceptable. So yeah, so roll, roll in the American tanks and take over Greenland. Well, two things. I would recommend everybody gets the map of the world that puts the South Pole at the top. Because when you look at the world upside down, as it were, you start to see how very big and strategic Greenland really is. Um, it looks like a small little sliver when you look at a traditional map. But when you turn that map upside down, Greenland is massive. And because it's massive, and now maybe I'm back to John le Carré, but I kind of wonder, is the United States already there? Yeah, must right. be. And well, like, I think it has sort of sovereignty in a military sense. Yeah, like, it has and who's going to complain? I mean, like, there's nobody out there to say, what are all these Americans doing But I think here? there is another, <laughs> the, 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 this is an interesting story, though, how it relates back to the, the to Denmark, you know, the story about 
national self-determination because Greenland is an autonomous part of Denmark with right. the right now to independence, which as I understand it didn't have before 2009. Right. But now it does. It does. And so when Trump made his, we're going to buy um, Greenland, <laughs> the Danish prime minister said, essentially, it's not American or Danish. It's up to the people of Greenland. Right. To decide. And that's a, that's a factor in that hasn't been there in this past great game over it. But you can see the possibilities then for one side saying, oh, well, actually, we'll entice yes. independence. We'll offer independence for the people. Almost like materially entice and this you is, to give independence to Greenland. And this is why China showed up and said, "Hey, we've got some cash. <laughs> we'll pay for you know. We'll 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 build. We'll you know give money away. They're by the way doing the same thing in Svalbard, right? Contributions for scientific research, whatever. So yes, I mean, and what do the Greenlanders think about this? Wow, finally everybody's showing up with cash. Like this is great." And would you be playing them all off and trying oh, certainly. to I've talk just, to everybody? And I just had a look here. The Greenland population is fifty six thousand. Hello. I mean, you don't have the Americans don't have to come up <laughs> exactly. with that much cash to to, uh, to persuade the Greenlanders that the it might be a good idea to have more American military presence there. That's and this right. is completely fascinating. So you've got Greenland um, on in the Western Hemisphere, and you've got Svalbard. Are there any other kind of points of contention in the Arctic that we need to be looking at? Yes. Um, maybe another point is Shamya Island, um, which is where the US holds a lot of its exercise, Arctic exercises. So it's Alaska, where again, when you look at the map, I, do you remember when Sarah Palin made that statement that, you know, yeah. I'm in Alaska and I can see the Russians? Yeah. yeah. Well, in a way, that wasn't wrong because no. you can, <laughs> right? It's like really close. And so this is seen as a very strategic location. And so the U.S. and NATO definitely are positioned up in that part of the world. Um, and you're, again, if you... If you set a Google alert, right, because the media doesn't cover any of this very well, in my opinion. I don't want to be the Arctic correspondent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who wants to be the Arctic correspondent? Exactly. Although having been up in the Arctic, I have to say it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen wow. in my life. It's I'd love so to see it. extraordinary. I mean, truly majestic. Um, but, you know, the thing is, these, these locations are incredibly remote. Um, but they are strategically so important. Um, so is Russia aware of being surrounded by U.S. strategic capability off Alaska, off Svalbard, off Greenland? Yes. So again, it's just useful to go back and actually look at a map and try to think about the world from the other person's perspective, right? And I'm not saying that Putin's being so bellicose is right, or and I don't agree with the view that somehow the West caused all this by you know its own actions. But you, you, if you want to understand how to navigate with an opponent, you have to put yourself in their shoes to a degree. Um, and I do. I think that Otto von Bismarck had a wonderful line. He was the Iron Chancellor who knew more about diplomacy than anyone alive today knows about diplomacy. And he said, diplomacy is the art of building ladders for others to climb down. And I think when you look at that map and you try to consider Russia's position being encroached upon by China, 
being encroached upon by NATO from many directions, not just the new NATO membership, but the physical presence, um, then you might see why they might be a little bit uneasy. Well, you mentioned this, didn't you, Helen, about NATO in the north and the importance of Finland and Sweden. Yeah, yeah because essentially it means that the Arctic is now much more of a NATO area than it was. Definitely. If we then go back to the, like, the China question, because one thing that I've been thinking about is if you think of the Great Northern Sea Route as being strategically, on the surface anyway, it's pretty advantageous to China, cuts out straight of Malacca, cuts out the yeah. Suez Canal. Doesn't it yeah. just turn, isn't there just the possibility that the Bering Strait then becomes the new Strait of Malacca? Yeah. There? Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is why Russia's very upset about um, all of these Nordic countries uh, aligning with NATO. Um, not to mention Nordefco, right? Nordefco is the new strategic alliance between the Scandinavian countries. Um, and that is an interesting development because they watched what was happening in Ukraine and basically went, if we had a problem, would NATO really come? We might have to defend ourselves for at least a while. Um, and all this ties to another very interesting location that very few people know about called the Suwaki Gap. And the Suwaki Gap is always called NATO's Achilles heel. So the Suwaki Gap is a 60-kilometer stretch between Kaliningrad and um, Belarus along the border between Poland and Lithuania. And so if Russia can punch a hole through that 60 kilometers and connect Belarus and Kaliningrad, then suddenly they cut off the Baltic states. So Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, they would be inside of Russia effectively. And the fear that this is in play, and this is partly what was behind the Prigozhin supposed coup attempt against Putin. One way of looking at it is, well, was it really a coup or was it an amazing way to move that many troops closer to the Sulwaki Gap without anybody noticing. They all got sent to Belarus, right? They all got sent to Belarus. And you're like, hmm, is this really... Because if Russia can do that and then take control, as it were, of the Baltic, at least from one side, then they're facing off against all those Nordefco members, those Nordic countries. And I think this also has caused the Finns and the Swedes and others to go, hmm, maybe we should join NATO. But even if we join them, be ready to handle this by ourselves if we have to. Um, and there are other things, by the way, I should say as well, that are important. I mean, Sweden is probably the world's greatest manufacturer of submarines now. And this is a world where we're so used to thinking of conflict and wars as army and territory-based. But I think in this new John le Carré configuration I'm describing, this is naval. This is at sea. This is a very different thing. And so there is this buildup of naval capability in the North. Well, I think you can see that with Russia more generally, isn't it? Because of the effect actually of ending to all intents and purposes, minus the Ukraine one, the gas land pipelines, yeah. is to turn Russia into an energy maritime power rather than an energy land power. Well, and notice just, I think, only two days ago, we saw the first shipment of LNG 
from Russia to China over the Arctic route. Again, it's using that naval pathway. Just one last question, I think, as we're getting to the end. How should we think about the relationship between what's going on in the Arctic right now, geopolitically, and what's going on with Taiwan? Uh, Look, I think for me, the Taiwan story is much more tied to Ukraine than the Arctic per se. Um, But I do think that part of the negotiating stance China is making clear is they've got a list of demands. And one of them is, you know, some kind of a deal over Taiwan. And the tricky thing is there's a real possibility now that Taiwan surprises everyone and agrees to a deal with the Chinese. Um, I noticed the Canadian foreign minister recently came out and said, if Taiwan cuts their own deal and they end up with something like what Hong Kong negotiated, we can't go to war over that. Like we can't intervene in that. Um, and frankly, everyone in Taiwan pretty much has made all their money from China. So when you sit with the Taiwanese, they are not like, we want to fight for independence. And in fact, they look at Ukraine and say, we don't want that to happen here. We do not want that to happen here. And I do think that the U.S. saw Taiwan as strategically important because of the semiconductor production, but that's all being moved to Arizona and Texas and frankly, into space. Um, you know, we're seeing we'll now. Have to get you yeah, we got to talk about space because, listen, in-orbit manufacturing is going to include in-orbit manufacturing of semiconductor chips because it's a natural, clean environment. It's actually cheaper, and you can produce higher quality chips doing that. So, again, that makes the Arctic important because all of your communications with the lunar surface, and we are in a race to the moon with the Chinese right now. No and the question. Indians. And the Indians and the Russians. Like everybody's racing for footholds on the moon, and particularly the South Pole of the moon, the equivalent of the Arctic of the moon, because that's where all the water is. And that's closest to the dark side, which everybody's aiming at as well. So again, Svalbard comes right into play there because that is the principal location where all of the communications with space are occurring. So if I were the Russians, I would understand that Svalbard and that communications network is extremely important. I could disable the West with that one spot. Can I be terribly parochial and ask one final question? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I, 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 I listen to this and I think, oh, well, I don't think Britain's in much of a race for the, uh, for the moon at oh, the moment. Oh, but they are. See, this is why this reassure, reassure me. Mm. This is, we're, we're still able to think about these things. Because I, I think back to the Second World War and what we, we started in, the, in 1920, didn't we? But in the Second World War, the importance of the Orkneys for Britain's naval fleet and the importance that Britain would have played in the sort of the, the high north. I mean, I, I do wonder what must the Americans think now of the potential for Scottish independence? That must be a real Achilles heel in, in the West, potentially. And, and where it, explain how where Britain is in, in all of this sort of race for the Arctic. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it is very interesting that the British Royal Marines and British military are constantly positioned up in Svalbard and training in the Arctic. Um, and... You know, you might laugh and say, well, who are they going to be in hand-to-hand combat with? There's a bunch of polar bears up there. But no, it's because this location is of such great strategic importance. 
Um, but it's more than that. And, and probably it's for a whole other podcast, but Britain is very involved in the new space race. And it is working very closely with the United States. And I already see companies in the UK, um, Spaceforge is one of them that's going to be building in orbit manufacturing facilities. Uh, and so I think the way the Americans think about Britain is you are the only, you're the only one of our allies that can actually keep up and work with us side to side. Everybody else can't quite keep up. They're not as technologically advanced. They don't have the command structures. And so we just kind of view Britain as our closest of our five eyes partners, five eyes being the, the closest, tightest security arrangement that exists in the West. Um, I think having lived here for so long, uh, the British underestimate their strategic importance. And I remember after Brexit happened, going into a meeting in the foreign office, um, and someone opened the meeting by saying, well, now that Britain is a small country with no voice, and and I was like, you don't get it. Actually, Brexit probably makes Britain a more important country with a greater voice on strategic security matters. Because it's not about the fact that Europe is larger. It's about the fact that Europe is way behind, and it's very hard for the U.S. to coordinate with Europe. Um, and they can hardly speak to each other, right? The radio systems, I mean... What military is there in Western Europe? This was Donald Trump's complaint as well, right? Like, when are you guys going to spend money creating your own defense capability? But Britain already has it. And I do think in this modern era, this isn't about how many aircraft carriers have you got. It's about what's your capacity to problem solve. And on that front, I would say the British are cleverer than the Americans when dealing with the Russians. Well, we've got to finish on that note. Yeah. <laughs> well, we hopefully will have you back to talk about the geopolitics of space. Well, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening to that episode of These Times. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did recording it. Uh, please do like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of These Times was produced as usual by Ewan Daughtry. 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.